beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I want to ask you something this morning. I want you to ask yourself, who am I? Who am I? It's a question which no doubt has some obvious answers to it. And perhaps you think of your job, or you think of your hobbies, or you think of your family, where your parents are from, or where your grandparents are from. Perhaps you think of a country that you have moved here from. These sorts of things, they help us to form our identity. And as Christians, I'm sure we've thought of this too, we have an overriding identity in Jesus Christ. We have a new identity that comes thanks to His work. And our identity in Christ then is the fundamental part of our identity. All those other things that I mentioned are not as central to us as our identity in Jesus Christ. Now, God has called us to this identity in Christ, an identity which lives in the hope of Christ's return, and it lives in holiness before God. So I bring you the Word of God under the following theme, that God has called His people to a life of hope and of holiness. We'll see two things, that disciplined minds set their hope fully on Christ, and in the second place, obedient children are conformed to God's holiness. Disciplined minds set their hope fully on Christ. At the very start of our text, in verse 13, we have that word, therefore, which means that our text is based on the things that have come immediately prior to it. The instructions on how we are to live now in holiness before God, they come as a result of the wonderful truths that Peter has spent the verses 3 through 12 telling us about. In short, Christians live the way they do because God has acted according to His great mercy when He gave us rebirth to a new life. Peter says in verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have a living hope. And a sure foundation, a sure inheritance that is one that's founded on our resurrected and living Lord Jesus Christ as we eagerly wait for his return. Therefore, Peter says, there is now a fitting way for us to respond. There is now a fitting way for us to live in the hope of these things. We are to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And you might wonder, what exactly is that grace that we set our hope fully on it? Well, that grace, it's, it's the object of our hope. It's what we picture in our mind's eye as we await the coming of our Lord by faith. That grace will be faith turning into sight. Now, Peter gives encouragement to these early believers that he writes to, and he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That's in verse 8, just before our text. But Peter says that when Christ returns, then this, this grace, it will be brought to the believers. And that grace is nothing other than seeing our Lord Jesus Christ. Then the joy that we have now by faith as he says in verse 8, will increase all the more as we leave every doubt behind, as we leave all of our insecurities behind, and even as we leave 
their sinful nature that we still have behind. And then we see with our very own eyes the glory of Jesus Christ. There is, however, some time between us and that reality. Peter has spoken about Christ's death and resurrection as kind of the beginning point of our hope. And he's also spoken about Christ's return as kind of the end point of our hope. But we're in between. We're somewhere in between there. We're in the things that have already come, but there are also things that have not yet come. Something has to be said about what comes between now and the end. And that's because these early believers, they were going through intense persecutions that would pressure them to abandon their faith in the meantime. So Peter tells them to set their hope fully on the grace that is coming by preparing their minds for action. And the phrase Peter uses here might be familiar to you. It's actually gird up the loins of your mind. Girding up the loins was something that the Israelites had to do as they prepared to leave Egypt as uh, the Pharaoh sent them out of Egypt after the Passover. To gird up the loins of your cloaks, well, the people of those days would wear longer clothing than we do, looser clothing, and so in order to get to work, they would have to tie it up somewhere. And what they would do is they would take the long clothes around their legs and they would pull it up to their belt and then tuck it in so that they could move, they could run, and they could work. A modern version of that imagery, you could say, would be to roll up your sleeves. So if you're trying to work in a shirt like this, that probably wouldn't work so well, and you would roll up the sleeve, get it out of the way, get ready for work. Or perhaps in the case of women, then you tie your hair back to get it out of the way to get some work done. That's what Peter's talking about here, to prepare yourself for work. Christians whose minds aren't girded up, are not, are not prepared for action, they're either relaxing or... In the case of Peter's audience, they're despairing of the faith. The world around them was pressuring them to not be prepared, to give up their preparations, to give up their diligence, and it was actually working on them. So Peter calls them to action by telling them, get ready, there's hard work to be done, and we need to do it. You need to be ready for the hard work. That's a decision that needs to come at a certain point in a Christian's life. The way that Peter writes, it indicates to us that he expects a Christian to be able to look back at a particular time in their life and say, yes, I have prepared for action. I am prepared for work. That's because Christians can't go on and on being ill-prepared for the work that Christ calls them to. There has to be a time at which we are ready to do what we are asked. Peter himself had once heard Jesus Christ give the same instructions. Christ had instructed his disciples to stay dressed for action. That's from Luke 12, verse 35 and 36, and we read Jesus' words there, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. So to gird up the loins, as Peter says, or to prepare your minds for action is actually a paraphrase of Jesus' own instruction, stay dressed for action. Peter's tying into this this stern warning of Jesus Christ for Christians to get ready and to stay ready. The early church didn't know the moment of Christ's return, and for that matter, we don't either. Just like a servant doesn't know when his master will come or go, it's not the servant's business. 
His return could be today, it could be tomorrow, or it could not be. And what holds true then for the early believers holds true for us, so our minds also must be prepared. That's not an easy thing at all. It's not an easy thing to be prepared. It's not an easy thing that Scripture is calling on us to do. To get ready and to stay ready, it requires discipline and a lot of it. Vigilance and diligence are not easy qualities to cultivate. In truth, we ourselves lack the discipline that we need to stay ready for Christ's return. Isn't it true that all too often we slip into ruts, that we slip into inaction and into our comfort zones when really Scripture calls us to be doing better things? Or worse, how often don't we engage in activities that we would rather not be caught doing when Christ returns? So we must pray then. We have to pray for the Spirit to work powerfully in our hearts. Only by the power of God will we remain disciplined to live in the hope of Christ's return. Only then will we be like faithful servants who watch for their master's return, no matter how delayed in coming he might be. Now, that's not all that Peter means by preparing your minds for action. While it's true that the early church was under persecution, they also had a problem within the brotherhood. So their first problem was that that they were under persecution, but they also had fractures in the unity of their own brotherhood. There were problems within the church. As Peter indicates in chapter 2, verse 1, he tells them, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. These Christians were all too focused on one one another's failings. And such a brotherhood is collectively ill-prepared for action. They are collectively ill-prepared to wait for the coming of Jesus Christ. So Peter instructs them to be prepared for action by being unified in longing for the pure spiritual milk. He tells them that like newborn infants, they ought to long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. He's telling them instead of looking horizontally, instead of looking at the people to your left and to your right, he's telling them that all Christians ought to look vertically. Look up towards God, or as the Catechism says it, set your heart on heavenly things where Christ is seated. Well, just as one prepares for action by girding up, by rolling up the sleeves or tying back our hair, so also Christian brothers and sisters, they prepare for action by putting away everything that interferes with longing for the grace that will come at Christ's revelation. And being so prepared, Christians will be ready for whatever action is necessary in their lives to live in the hope that they have in Jesus Christ. And yet there's more. Because Christians also need to maintain that state of readiness. Being prepared, it comes at a certain point, as we've already said, but then there's also the need to continue going that way. Peter instructs the early believers to be sober-minded then. Now, typically, to be sober, it means to abstain from alcohol or drugs or anything like that. Someone who is sober is not intoxicated. Their judgment isn't impaired by the things that they've eaten or drink or drunk. 
Being sober-minded means that we are not easily swayed one way or the other by every passing difficulty. Much like alcohol takes away the ability to think and to see clearly, so also refusing to be spiritually sober-minded takes away the ability to see the various difficulties, the trials in our lives through the eyes of faith. Now, drunkenness makes it impossible to act proportionately to what's going on around you. For example, even though someone who's driving while drunk may try to stay within the lines of the road and he may be giving it his honest effort, he cannot do it. It is impossible because he is impaired. So also, if we're not sober-minded, we will not be able to respond in a Christian manner to the various trials that our faith must undergo in this life. If we're not grounded on the Word of God, then we won't be able to see the trials and discipline as part of God's plan to lead us to salvation. So we stay grounded then by refusing to take in this spiritual intoxication, this spiritual alcohol. Spiritual alcohol is that which deludes us into thinking that this life is going to be an easygoing ride or that it will be free from all difficulty. Such a message, it tickles the ears for a short time and it's nice to hear, but eventually reality sets in. Eventually the brokenness of this world that leads to difficulties like illness, like losing your job, like a sudden car accident or an unexpected death of a family member. And those who depend on the intoxicating influence of health and wealth gospels, that everything goes perfectly well for Christians, will find all too abruptly that it has abandoned them when they need it. And all that there is left to fill that void will be doubt, loss, and heartache. So do not long for things like that. Instead, long for the pure spiritual milk, which is the Word of God. We've got to understand that as we've been reborn by the power of the Spirit, as Peter talks about in the first two verses of this, of this letter, that we are all spiritual infants. Since we've been reborn, we are spiritual infants. And all infants drink as much milk as they can. Every parent knows this. So what goes for infants in this regard, it also goes for us spiritually. We all need the pure Word of God. That is what the Spirit uses to make us grow up into our salvation. By it, we stay sober-minded, and we attain to the readiness that Scripture calls us to. A prepared mind and a sober mind will long for this spiritual milk which is the teaching of the Word of God concerning our salvation. Such a disciplined mind will not be swayed by every persecution. It won't be swayed by every different teacher that comes on your way. And it will not long for worship either, that it's all dressed up and entertaining. It will instead eagerly desire the genuine, honest preaching of the gospel, the proclamation of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And we can show that we have our hope set fully on Christ by having a disciplined mind, one that's ready for action and one that's sober. And this hope that we have, then it will show itself in our actions by conforming to God's own holiness. And we'll explore this holiness also in our second point, that obedient children are conformed to God's holiness.
Well, Peter addresses these early believers as obedient children. As obedient children. You notice that he doesn't hope that they will eventually be obedient children, but he assumes that they already are obedient children. And this is because they already have the rebirth that God has given them, a rebirth that was given so that they might be obedient. In this sense, we could rather say that they are children of obedience rather than obedient children. That would be another way of saying the same thing that Peter is. That emphasizes what Peter's getting at because he's talking about who these people are in Christ. He's talking about their new identity in Jesus Christ rather than talking about how they are already conducting themselves. As we saw in chapter 2, verse 1, we saw that the way they're conducting themselves is with malice, slander, envy, hypocrisy. Those are not the actions of obedient children. But Peter's saying, you've been reborn to be obedient children, so live up to that title. He's saying, be what you are in Jesus Christ. Be what you are in Jesus Christ. These people, they were, they were slipping into their old ways of life, old patterns of pagan worship, old patterns of revelry. And he warned the early believers, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. See, they had used to live in a life of ignorance of God, of ignorance of His ways. It was a life of darkness, a life of wandering, a life that did not know God or His excellencies or any of the things that He had done in the history of the world. It's an ignorance that leads to all kinds of pagan practices, every kind of sexual immorality that can be imagined, and every kind of excess that can be conceived. Now, old pagan religions, they they used to use sex and alcohol as part of worship to their gods, part of twisted worship to pagan gods, mixing then perhaps two of the strongest temptations that Christians will face in their lives. With pagan religion, it would result in this enticing power that could enslave the early believers who practiced such things. And Peter informs them that then that their new life, it includes an antithesis from these things. An antithesis is, an, is like an opposition, a direct contrast between one thing and another. The two cannot tolerate the presence of the other. They're mutually exclusive things. Now, this antithesis is not between believers and their persecutors, as we might first expect, but it is actually between the believers and their former selves, between the believers and their old way of life, the new nature and the old nature. These believers are now at odds with who they once were. But the reality is that that believers, they cannot remain as they used to be according to their old nature. And now the persecutors, they come in because it is exactly this antithesis that they are trying to exploit. It's exactly this tension and this difficulty that believers have that persecutors want to exploit. And they sought to exploit it on two fronts. As it says in chapter 4, verse 4, They, those are the persecutors, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. So they're surprised when you don't join them. That's the first way. And the second way, they malign you. By inviting believers into a flood of debauchery, these persecutors, they make an appeal to what the old nature loves to do. They make an appeal to the way that those believers used to be. It's an appeal to that old nature to act to try to choke out the new nature by indulging in sin. 
And if a Christian should resist such a temptation, there's another tool that they can use to make them go back to their former passions. Enemies of the church, they insulted the believers for not joining them in the same sinful acts that they were doing. So Peter warns them not to engage in such passions that are spurred on only by willful ignorance of God, knowing that it would enslave them. It would bring them back into the house of bondage. It would bring them back under the power of sin. But Peter knows that believers have been ransomed by the blood of Jesus Christ. They've been bought out of slavery to such things by their Lord. As he explains just after our text in verses 18 and 19, he says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Those who are reborn through Christ's resurrection have been ransomed by him so that they might no longer be slaves to passion, but be servants of God. No longer people of ignorance, but people of faith. Now, in Peter's time, most of the Christians would have been converts from some old pagan religion, probably from the the Greek or the Roman religions. But for us, many of us have been, many of us have been born into Christianity. Many of us have Christian parents. We were baptized when we were infants. And yet the principle that we must abandon the ignorance of this world, that we have to abandon the ignorance of our former lives, it holds for us as well. That remains for convert and lifelong Christian alike. We are obedient children. That is our status. That's who we are in Jesus Christ. And as children, then, we are heirs of a glorious inheritance. As obedient children, we must obey God. We must act in accordance with the holiness of the God who has called us. And he's called us to be ransomed out of darkness and to live this holy life. That is what he's called us to do, and it's a calling in Christ to be holy. Holiness characterizes the Christian life because God himself is holy. There there cannot be any situation where we're at odds with God's holiness. That cannot happen. That is not possible. For Peter then to be holy is to act in accordance with the will of God. As he says in chapter 4 verse 2, that's something that can only happen by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's not something that we can achieve by our own power. That's not something that we can achieve by our own will or our own efforts. And now Peter puts the call to be holy in Christ in the form of a command from the Old Testament in order to remind his believers of what is contained there. The quotation in our text, it can be found in a few different places in the book of Leviticus. It is a quote from that book that, like a refrain that comes back again and again as the Lord called his people Israel to be holy. In Leviticus 11 verse 44, the command comes in reference to Israel's food laws. Many of us have read about those food laws in our daily devotions. We know roughly about them. Some animals were clean. Some animals were unclean. It's somewhat hard to find a pattern of which animals were clean and which ones were not and why. And the reason is because God himself is the one who gets to choose what is holy and what is not for his people. He exercises the right to set aside some things and not others to be clean and good 
for a holy people to eat. And again, the command comes in Leviticus 19, verse 2. In this case, holiness is to be found in keeping worship to the Lord pure. These laws include warnings against pagan idolatry, commands also to be merciful to the poor and to the widower and to the widow, also to the soldier, to do justice impartially, and also to do business honestly. In short, we could represent this whole chapter of Leviticus 19 with the words of James 1, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world. Or maybe Micah 6, verse 8 will do to summarize it as well. Do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with your God. Those verses, they get at the heart of what lies behind Leviticus 19, verse 2. And there's one further reference to Leviticus which has to be considered based on Leviticus 20, verse 26, where this command to be holy also comes. Peter exhorts the believers to live a life of sexual purity, to control their bodies. Adultery, homosexuality, incest, and even bestiality, you remember all these things were used by pagan religions and as twisted worship to their pagan gods, these things have no place in God's presence. They are unholy to Him. Now, we are to be holy in this regard because God Himself is holy, as the Holy Spirit says through the Apostle Peter. Scripture gives us a picture of what it's like to be in the presence of God's holiness, God's purity, His total moral goodness, His hatred of sin, and His love of righteousness. These are all part of Scripture's testimony, testimony about God's holiness, about how holy He is. They all contribute to our understanding of what that means for God to be holy. When sinners come into the presence of God, they can, they can feel it, that God is holy and that they are not. You can think, for example, of Israel at Mount Sinai. They were terrified by the smoke and the fire that they saw on the mountain when God spoke. God's holiness, it makes people tremble in fear, just like Isaiah when he had the vision of God's holiness in the temple. Now, Peter picks up on this fear when he continues his explanation of how believers ought to conduct themselves. Just outside of our text, just after verse 16, he says, conduct yourselves with fear. He tells these believers to keep in mind that at one time they themselves were futile in their thinking and walked in the ways that they had inherited from their forefathers. They were no better than the people around them, not in their own strength. So then they ought always to keep a healthy and reverent fear of God in their sufferings, remembering that they had a privilege to call upon God as Father. And it's good for us that we have such a reverent fear of God. His holiness is not something that we are permitted to get cozy with. God's holiness, it demands respect, mindfulness in His presence, and worthiness in our conduct. There are boundaries between us and Him, and for good reason. You remember that when Israel was at Mount Sinai, the Lord instructed a barrier to be erected around the mountain so that not even an animal from Israel would touch the mountain and have to be stoned for it. The barrier between God and His people is for their own sake, so that His holiness doesn't break out against them. 
And yet, even so, God did not leave us with no way into his presence. He did not leave us with no way to bring all of our needs, all of our cares, and all of our praise before his holy throne. Through the high priest in the Old Testament, the people could bring their gifts and their sacrifices to God. That high priest alone was able to enter the holy of holies, the most holy place, the innermost part of the tabernacle. To be sure, there were extensive protocols, washings and sacrifices that he had to do to get there, but nevertheless, God made a way for his people to come to him. And in Christ, there is an even better way. On account of his work, many of these barriers have been removed. The curtain, you remember, when Jesus Christ died, it was torn in two. It was torn in two. That barrier was no longer needed. Because now, now we have a high priest who serves in heaven. One who does not need those extensive protocols. Because Jesus Christ, he has no sin. So he doesn't need to do the washings for sin. And he doesn't need to do the sacrifices for his own sin because he does not have sin. He himself is holy. And so that's why many of these boundaries have been removed. So, for example, we experience this this freedom by approaching God every single day with our prayers and our requests. Every mealtime we open with prayer and we close with the reading of God's word and prayer again. We may worship him freely each and every week, even as we are doing right now. We can do this because we have been washed. We've been consecrated with the blood of Christ. And so God's holiness, it does not break out against us. We have peace with God's holiness on account of the blood of Jesus Christ. But we should not confuse peace on the one hand with coziness on the other. Not at all. God is no less holy now than he ever was. God is holy, and for that reason, we also must seek to be holy in all of our conduct. We must strive by the power of the Spirit to attain to the purity and to the worthiness that God has called us to. And so we've got to ask ourselves certain pointed questions sometimes. If God's holiness is a reality in our lives. For example, when we pray, are we aware that we come into the presence of God? We are coming before his throne. We are in his throne room. And how about the coming and going of our daily lives? Are we honest in our business dealings? God's holiness matters there. Do we strive to attain sexual purity in and outside of holy marriage? God's holiness matters there as well. Children, does your conduct on the playground show that you believe what the Bible says is true? And perhaps you've outgrown the playground, but is your homework still done with honesty and with good effort? Because God's holiness matters there too. You see, God's holiness, it motivates conduct in every area of our lives. It affects our work and our play. It affects our entertainment, our finances, our romantic lives, and also our worship. There's frankly not a single area of our lives that God's holiness does not matter. But then there's also a promise that comes with that as well. 
Because the promise is that there's also not a single area of our lives, not a single corner of our hearts that the Holy Spirit will not touch. There's not a single part of ourselves that the Holy Spirit will not make holy before God in due time. So it's both a promise and a command. Be holy as I am holy. God commands us to be holy, and he also promises that he will make us what he commands. So the reverent fear then that we have towards God, it doesn't destroy the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. That hope has a firm foundation apart from our own work, which, is, which rests on the work of Jesus Christ. The fear of the Lord is rather an expression of that hope. It flows out of that sure hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We have the opportunity to fear the Lord our God because Christ is bringing us into his presence. And being in God's presence, it doesn't fill us with dread as it did with the Israelites or with Isaiah when he had the vision of God's holiness because of Christ's satisfaction. So we don't get cozy with God, but in Christ we have peace with God. So then let us seek to live in holiness before our God during our time in this life. And in due time, the discipline of our minds focused on this hope, it will be rewarded. Amen.